This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. The following PTJ podcast is the 2009 Rothstein Debate. When does regulation become over-regulation? And when does under-regulation invite abuse? The 2009 Rothstein debate took place at PT 2009, the annual conference and exposition of the American Physical Therapy Association, on June 12, 2009, in Baltimore, Maryland. The participants are Dr. Larry Benz and Dr. Stephen Levine. The moderator is Dr. Anthony DeLito. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick introduces the debate. It is such a pleasure to welcome all of you to this session. I'm going to read the title because it's way too long for me to remember. Um, when does regulation become overregulation, and when does under-regulation invite abuse? The purpose of this morning is to have a real debate. Um, those of you who knew Jules Rothstein knew that he never met a point he couldn't argue And in fact, Jules would often take the other side of an issue just to argue because he loved it so much. And one of the most frustrating things to me about us is it's not uncommon that when a question is asked from the audience, there's like, why are you doing that to that person? I still remember uh, going to a meeting and having a faculty member come up and say, don't ask our students any questions when they present because they're too nervous. So we've always been fearful as a group of engaging in debate. Um, And engaging in debate can be passionate, it can be emotional, but you leave the table as friends. All right, so that's what we hope happens today. Um, And I know how happy Jules would be if he were here seeing that we are finally having a real debate. So thank you so much for being here. The person who's going to moderate is Dr. Anthony DeLito, who is professor and chair at University of Pittsburgh and has all these other titles at Pittsburgh. He runs the University of Pittsburgh almost. Um, and in addition, he's a member of the steering committee. He's the chair of the steering committee for PTJ. Um, the steering committee gave me the charge of making the journal the best in the world and making it clinically relevant. Well, that's easy, right? <clears throat> Uh, And in addition, the steering committee is responsible for organizing this debate. So I thank Tony and the steering committee for the work um, and for the ability for us to honor Jules in this manner. Thank you. Um, As Becky said, my name is Tony DeLito, and I'm here to moderate this session. I'd like to first uh, begin by introducing our speakers, and we really have two great speakers this morning. Uh, uh, Both are are extremely well-versed in this area. I I think uh, it's safe to say that I could have asked either of these people to take the opposite sides, and they would have been more than competent and more than able to do it. Uh, I want to stress the point that we've asked them to take a slant on this, a certain slant, and uh, it's very important that um, you, you, that the audience realize this, that they are taking a position that they may or may not agree with, uh, you know, but it's irrelevant whether or not they agree with it. The issue is how, they, uh, how, how the uh, points are brought out and how they're put forth. 
Um, I'm going to try very hard to, um, uh, to nudge them in certain ways. That's what a moderator should do. And uh, without further ado, I'll introduce our, our speakers. Uh, the first is uh, to, my, to my immediate left is uh, Dr. Larry Benz. Dr. Benz is the president and CEO of PT Development, which is a limited liability corporation. He's nationally recognized for his expertise in private practice, physical therapy, industrial medicine, and marketing. He's a frequent lecturer at multiple DPT programs and MBA programs throughout the country. He's been on the APTA's advisory panel on practice and the board of, of the American Board for Physical Therapy Specialties. He's a recipient of numerous business and physical therapy awards, including the Kentucky Physical Therapy Outstanding Physical Therapist Award and the Ernst & Young uh, Entrepreneur of the, uh, of the Year for his region. It's important to realize that uh, one of the one of the key attributes and one of the reasons we wanted Larry up here is he's really one of, he's a consumer of regulation, okay? A, a, a true a consumer, the person who is, who is uh, left with dealing with re regulation uh, in, in large practice environments. The next speaker to the far left is Stephen Levine. Uh, now, Dr. Levine, most uh, of you who have been at APTA national meetings know, know Dr. Levine from his past experience as Speaker of the House. However, uh, what you may not know is he's uh, a nationally recognized expert and consultant in specializing in practice management and payment strategies and rehabilitation services. He's a certified peer reviewer and has provided education and training to both providers and payers at the local and national level for 20 years. He's worked extensively with federal investigative and law enforcement agencies, including the Office of the Inspector General, Department of Justice, and FBI in areas of fraud, abuse, and medical necessity, overutilization, and medical policy review. And from the 1992 to 1999, Dr. Levine was national APTA appointee to the American Medical Association's Healthcare Profession Professionals Advisory Committee. Of the relative value update committee and, and the, of the relative value update committee, which is a multi-specialty committee that advises AMA and CMS on appropriate relative values of medical services provided by a broad range of licensed providers. So, from that introduction, I hope you realize that we have two extremely capable speakers up here, and I'm going to try to frame the the, the debate uh, and. It was, I have to tell you, it was difficult to, um, to, to bring this debate forward for a variety of reasons. One was uh, people got the, the uh, people had their correct perception that Medicare regulations are extremely complex. How in the world can we have a, a cognizant, a, 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 a reasonable debate on, on such a complex area with when we only have an hour and a half? Okay, and uh, of course, uh, my response to that is very simple. Uh, I don't think we're here to learn about regulations, the specifics of regulations. I think we're here to learn about um, uh, the concept of regulation, how it applies in to to us as a, as practitioners, with re and and in particular with Medicare uh, being such a large having such a large influence on what we do, uh, and. And what are the pluses and minuses of having this as an issue? What are the pluses and minuses of regulation? And uh, we all know, uh, and I've been around long enough to realize that uh, these regulations, as, as, they, as they are out there, have not become less complex. They've actually become more complex. And I like to think of this in a different framework. 
get us out, get ourselves away from Medicare and get us into the more of the of the, the general idea of regulation. And I switch a little bit in our minds, just switch just slightly away from healthcare, and think about uh, taxes. It was just recently tax season. Now there's a good number of people in this room here. How many people in this room did their own taxes? How many people farmed their taxes out? Okay. Now, the question then becomes why? And the issue is, uh, as I think, is the tax code has become such that you just can't deal with it anymore. And you find some other people to come in and deal with it. And we have seen this come up, this issue come up in the tax world on numerous occasions. And you've seen people with quote-unquote radical solutions to this, some of which have included, let's just have a flat tax, forget about it. In which case, I think the people who prepare taxes you know, panic at that point in time, right? I think in taking that frame of reference, we don't need to be talking about uh, the, the detail of the regulations, the tax regulations, to, to actually begin talking uh, about some solutions to this or some other alternatives to this. And I'm hoping that that's the direction that this debate takes, that we talk about uh, the problems we have, the issues that are in front of us, and most importantly, the last part of what we, I hope to deal with or I hope to, to uh, steer the debate toward is what in the world are we going to do about this? How are we going to deal with this issue? Okay? So without further ado, I, I, I flipped a coin in the back of my, mind, in the back of my head and uh, Larry ended up getting the heads, so, uh, which means he's going to get the first question. And, and I want to tell you, you I want to again uh, uh, say one thing before we begin and that's that I really admire these guys for being up here. They have no clue what we're going to be asking, okay? <laughs> Absolutely no clue. And um, I did this because of this person. <laughs> um, uh, Jules used to tell me all the time that uh, uh, in, in political debates, he would, um, he would lament the fact that the questions were given away to the candidates beforehand, and they, they, they did just did, weren't debates after that. And uh, so I, I was pretty um, adamant in the steering committee meetings that we, we not give the questions first, okay? So first off, my first question to Larry is, uh, Larry, uh, what do you perceive as the reason that regulations were put in place in the first place? And how, after you, uh, and, and really, I know there are probably multiple reasons, but let's try to deal with the one or two most important reasons that you think they're... And how do you think um, the regulations themselves... How do you think right now that's faring? How are we addressing those main reasons that the uh, regulations were put in place? Well, first of all, thanks for allowing me to participate. Um, you know, it's, uh, if you thought last year's debate on the broken education model was, was important, this one's even going to be more important, I think, because it gets to the heart of the matter of us as professionals and the viability of... of uh, freestanding outpatient practice. I also want to say thank Steve for participating, even though I think we're going to vehemently disagree on most points. There's no lack of respect, and I hope he doesn't take it personally, and I won't uh, as well. And I also want to thank Tony for waving the eight-minute rule before we get started here. <laughs> and last but not least, I've got to thank the exhibitors, whoever lined them up this year. I've been coming to these things for about 22 years, and yesterday I was stunned to see United Healthcare and CMS both have a booth. The trinkets from United Healthcare were much more than they pay me, so I gathered a whole bag full of them. 
but more importantly, Medicare had a very nice, there wasn't anybody behind Medicare's booth, I don't know, maybe they've been shot by now, but they had this PQRI made simple, four pages plus three other books, multiple pages, very simple. Um, so why were regulations put in first place? I think first and foremost, you know, we have to have rules, we have to have some procedures. Um, in my mind, they're vetted through uh, the legislative process and our state practice acts. I think that uh, we also have the Model Practice Act, which is also vetted by physical therapists and in conjunction with protecting the public. Where we go outside from that and where we tend to deviate is these regulations tend to accrete and gain more and more steam. And we start out with well-intended purposes, but we end up with a superimposition of rules on top of rules on top of rules that demoralize our profession. I challenge every one of you to go into a PT clinic, those who, who, who uh, are in a role where they don't see the transactions between a PT and their patient, and you will note a distinguished difference between the physical therapist and a non-Medicare patient and the physical therapist and a Medicare patient. First of all, they're wearing a stopwatch when they have a Medicare patient. They're, kind, they're cognizant of timed versus untimed codes, overlaps in schedules, whether or not something is deemed... Uh, you know, eight minutes or not. In fact, we give them a little piece of paper that teaches them how to add 15 and 8, 30 and 8, 45 and 8. And it demoralizes them. In fact, all these rules, although they're well intended, the consequences are never brought forth. We never ask, you know, on, on most of these regulations, we never really ask, what, where's the common sense in any of this? And then secondly, we're never told the cruel repercussions of it. And that is that we acquiesce to a reimbursement model that in best cases, and we can run the numbers for you, that will put a wage cap on PT earnings because the Medicare rules, for example, have now changed us from a profession that is strictly time-based. There's only so many billable one-on-one -on -one direct units you can do in a day. And if all payers do that, we're, our viability might be in question. The rules do two things. They demoralize us, they ruin our morale, and they also cause us to be immoral. They demoralize us because we have to remember too many rules that are so far indifferent from the normal scope of day-to-day -day practice, and, they're, and they dummy us down for the Medicare patient. And the second thing they do is they, there's a fudge factor. We've turned Medicare into the golf handicap system. <laughs> we truly have, where now a manipulation, couple-minute procedure, now we've got to stretch it out to eight minutes or else it didn't exist. We have to remember a timed code versus an untimed and whether they overlap or not. And all of these things cause you to do things you wouldn't normally do. 23 minutes instead of 28 minutes. 23 minutes instead of 20 minutes. And it just goes on from there. So I think they were well intended, but they've just accreted to the point where we've stopped asking, does it make sense? And then, and then secondly, they demoralize us and cause us, to a certain extent, to lose our morals when we, when we uh, put it in action. Steve, same question. Same question. <clears throat> well, again, I'd also like to, to thank uh, the steering committee for inviting me to be here. Um, is this on? Yeah, it's on. I think it's on. I think it's on. Um, I I, we won't overlap. I was hoping I would get Larry's mic away from him. Um, <laughs> um, and, and again, uh, thank you for being here, and, and uh, thank Larry. As Larry indicated, I think this is uh, certainly going to be a spirited debate. Uh, there's not um, probably much in this particular area that he and I agree on, but as he said, we, we, uh, we have remained colleagues and respect each other's opinions. Uh, mostly because I think we both recognize that there are those of you out here and those in our profession who um, think either like I do or like Larry does or somewhere in the middle. 
Uh, and so what, what's uh, important and importance in having this debate, and I appreciate the, the, the importance of the topic, is because there are lots of misperceptions out there. Um, and the area of regulation is one misperception. So if we talk about um, why regulations exist, um, you know, I think we can all understand why regulations exist, from the simple regulation of having a, a speed limit on a highway uh, to regulations in the tax code. Um, regulations exist in, in the area of healthcare uh, in an attempt to provide some standardization. And in fact, regulations under Medicare have attempted to do that. Now, are, are they complex and confusing? Absolutely. Uh, do they make sense? Often they don't. Uh, however, uh, the penalties for not adhering to the regulations uh, have become quite severe. And they've become quite severe given the context of healthcare as it exists in, in the United States today, where uh, we spend more uh, on healthcare than any other country uh, in the world, and yet we're number 37 uh, in the world with regards to uh, quality of healthcare. So when we look back at the history of regulation, physical therapists and independent practice became regulated under Medicare in 1972. Uh, it was the first time that the benefit for physical therapy services uh, was extended into that environment. And for the purposes of the hour and a half that we have here, I think Larry and I, we all agree, we're going to talk about Medicare regulations uh, and stick to sort of that and, the, and their implications. Um, and then uh, after that, um, we started seeing uh, uh, some additional regulations on top. Now, why do they exist? Well, I think first and foremost, they exist to provide some sort of standardization. Now, I don't know, I know Larry is, is familiar with practice, as am I. Uh, in our practice, we had 143 different insurance companies that we contract with, which meant we had 143 different sets of rules. And you know what? Try and find those rules anywhere. Try and find how those insurance companies are going to adjudicate your claims. You know how you find out? You find out when you get your explanation of benefits that tells you that they did or didn't pay you for something. So what we have in a system of Medicare regulations is a set of expectations in an attempt to standardize and to, to regulate. Now, regulations typically develop for two reasons. Uh, there's probably more, but I think two main reasons. One is, uh, potentially a, a lack of uh, understanding of the entity with whom you're trying to regulate. And this is particularly evident when you have physicians trying to regulate physical therapy services or policymakers trying to regulate physical therapy services without physical therapists involved. The second reason for regulation is to control problems. Uh, if we don't have a speed limit, any of you ever driven in Rome? If you don't have a speed limit and you don't have lines in the middle of the road, it, everything becomes anarchy. Uh, and although rules are confusing, and I, you know, this may be one area that Larry and I agree with, which is that the rules are complex, the truth of the matter is most of our profession operates in a single type of setting, either a hospital or private practice or a nursing home, still nursing facility or home health setting. And although the rules are complex, they are transparent. I don't believe the difficulty is in the regulation. I believe the difficulty is in the value that our profession has placed on knowing those regulations. Everyone runs to the mailbox to look for the next continuing education course that's coming out on the shoulder or the knee or treating stroke patients. But how many of us run to that mailbox to get the brochure on the documentation guidelines that have been developed or the other regulations that have been developed? We hope that if we keep our head down and provide great patient care, that that's good enough. And the truth of the matter is, in this environment where healthcare fraud, waste, and abuse uh, makes up between 8 and 10 cents of every dollar spent on health care, 
that the regulations are necessary. And our responsibility as, profession, as professionals and as an association is to try best not only to understand the regulations, but then to influence them when they don't make sense or when they are confusing. Thanks, Steve. Um, I'm going to try to pick up on some of the issues that were brought up by both of you and uh, go on with the next question. And the next question will be to, um, I'm going to put Steve <coughs> on the hook again here. Um, Steve, you, you say the, uh, one of the issues that, uh, one of the reasons for regulations is to standardize care. Uh, and you say these uh, the regulations have been in place since 1972, yet I'm still hearing from many, many people that, that we have a great deal of variation in care right now, still continues to exist. And I believe that is true even in the Medicare area. So are we, would, I might assume that we would be much worse off without the regulations or that the regulations still con continue to need to be um, uh, tweaked some to, to, to bring this variation down to a a reasonable variation? I think that's a great question. I, I would argue that the variation we have in practice today is really a, a variation in clinical practice. Um, it's a variation in what we believe is, is the best clinical care to provide to our patients is coming to agreement on interventions that are based on evidence that, that are effective. Um, but I think we have really lessened the variation uh, with regards to the requirements uh, to be paid for a particular service. Uh, so, so several examples with, with regards to that. Um, we, we have um, clear uh, regulations which has decreased the variability in issues like supervision. Um, now, having said that, that's double-edged sword because uh, if you're in a physical therapist and private practice setting, your rules for supervision are, diff are different than if you're in a home health setting than if you're in a hospital setting. So we still have issues there when you have seven or eight different settings and you have different regulations governing a single issue uh, with regards to supervision. But the, the, the difficulty with variation in, in uh, our practice is, is really just beginning to be addressed by regulation, things like PQRI. And we, we can argue the, 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 the ultimate uh, outcome of PQRI, but the, the ultimate value is how can we argue about the fact that quality of care and positive outcomes is really where payment should go. We shouldn't just be given a blank check for anything that we want to do, regardless of whether it's going to work or whether we're going to get an outcome. So I think we have seen, regulation has in fact, for good or for bad, um, minimized many variations in many areas of care. I'm sure we're going to get into the issue of, of time services and supervision and those sorts of things. But I think we're just beginning to see the, the regulation that's going to occur to, to force us as a profession to really reduce our unwarranted variation in practice, which is a, a major topic of, of our House of Delegates this year. Larry, rebuttal? Well, sure. I mean, you're going to find a lot more in the literature about the great variability in practice pattern than you're going to find any scintilla of research that supports that all PT has to be done one-on-one -on -one or that a PT can't manage more than one patient at a time. Okay? <laughs> so there's no question about the variability of practice. Um, there's too many regulations. The pendulum has to swing. Do we need more regulations in the banking industry? Probably. But there's only one industry that has more regulations than us, and that's nuclear power plants. Um, Steve is right. They might be transparent, but they don't make any sense. Nobody is asking the very simple question, why is this rule here? Who is it protecting? They're also counterintuitive. And if you have spent one week on all the listservs that are out there with so-called informed PTs, 
asking the same questions about overlaps, Medicare versus non-Medicare, uh, timed versus untimed. Even some of the positions put out uh, by APTA are very counterintuitive. For example, in the position, I hope we talk about it today, of the one-on-one uh, -on -one in group therapy for Medicare, um, the fact that they support the notion of a supervised, unattended electric stim while a PT is doing one-on-one -on -one with a patient, but they don't support the fact that a PT can oversee more than one patient doing therapeutic exercise, which, which is both safer, but unfortunately it's reimbursed about half the cost of the other. Um, we're looking at a situation where we've got about 50 million Americans without health insurance. That's a shame. We put 50 million people into a system where it suddenly opens the floodgates of more patients needing PT. We're introducing them to a regulatory system of Medicare that will not allow us to see them because we've transitioned to a timed profession limited by units, timed and untimed codes, and capped by the number of patients we can see in a day. Lastly, the states that are the most regulated in physical therapy, which is arguably New York, got the most restricted practice act. And in New York, their reimbursement rate is 40 to 60 bucks. Society has spoken and says, if a physical therapist sees all the patients one-on-one, -on -one, and that's a state where support personnel are not allowed to breathe and consume the same oxygen as a licensed PT, they're paying 40 to 60 bucks. So the regulations have gone too far. The pendulum needs to swing and swing widely the other way. We have rebuttal time? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Um, I can't comment on um, we being the most regulated group after nuclear power plants. I know there are some in the audience who could. I, I just don't believe that that's true, but that, that's just me. Um, I, I think part of what we have to make sure that we're doing is, is debating and arguing from a point of fact um, and not misperception. The more that we in our profession say Medicare is one-on-one -on -one and everybody else is something different, that, that's just factually incorrect. Now, I'm going to go back to 1995. In 19, before 1995, we were paid under a usual, customary, and reasonable system of payment. Medicare transitioned to what was known as a resource-based relative value scale. Now, I have to tell you, because I was there to, to represent APTA during that period of time, that, that in between, ninth, between December 31st, 1994 and January 1st, 1995, physical therapists received a 240% pay raise. Now, nobody was complaining during that time. In fact, everybody was going out and, and doing cartwheels because the Medicare payment system had changed. In fact, we were seeing, with regards to payment, somewhere between $130 and $160 an hour for seeing a patient. Now, I don't know, I, I think in, in the relative scheme of other healthcare providers, that's reasonable. Now, our, Larry makes a, a really good point in the issue of one-on-one -on -one care. Now, we need to understand, the concept of one-on-one -on -one care is not a Medicare issue. It's a CPT issue. That definition is the definition that we were provided. When APTA got to the table, we were provided a definition of a CPT code that said each 15 minutes. We had to come up with a value and a payment for that system. Now, I, I, I'm going to agree. Maybe this is the second time, so somebody needs to keep count. I'm going to agree with Larry on, on the idea that maybe this concept of one-on-one -on -one care is not the best place for us to be. But the point is, that's our professional responsibility. For instance, the House of Delegates maybe needs to take up this issue, or the Board of Directors needs to take up this issue, is what is the model of physical therapy that we think is best for our patients? And then, once we determine that model, we go back through the process, and we affect change in that process. 
But if we continue to, to, to put out the perception that, well, Medicare is one-on-one and, and everybody else is not, that's just factually incorrect. And the problem with that is that people who believe that, who, who code differently for Medicare and non-Medicare patients, are placing themselves at significant risk. It's not the Medicare system in this regard. It's our coding structure. That's what needs to change to appropriately reflect physical therapist interventions today. This is an area where we could not disagree more. When he's using the words facts, he really ought to be using the words his personal bias, because that's what it is. The CPT codes say direct. Then you have to look at what is, how does the physicians define direct one-on-one? And they define it as verbal, visual, or manual contact. Okay? And then you have to look at what payers are interpreting that. Physicians would never restrict them to doing 100% of every service, including every blood pressure check, filling a syringe with, with a, a steroid of every por- portion of the care. They use extenders. They use extenders when they do surgery. So you look at that and you say verbal, visual, or manual contact. And then you say, well, whose job is it to interpret it? It's the payer's job. Well, most payers I know interpret it, and they want to know, are you practicing within the scope of your license? If the scope of your license, all apologies to New York and Maryland, in most other states that I know of, allows you to direct and delegate how you were trained. For years on the advisory panel on practice, every other meeting it seemed that we, they wanted this debate about what could a PT do and a PTA do and what support, per, and we would talk about that ad nauseum. And then somewhere along the line they got tired of talking about it and they just said nobody can do anything except a PT and, and PT assistant and a very ill, non-membership centric position that was taken. But the fact of the matter is it's a payer interpretation. Medicare is very explicit, no argument there. Um, but. For him to say that it's a fact that everything in PT is direct one-on-one, he's just simply wrong. It's his bias. And the danger of that bias is he's going out teaching courses and telling everybody that it's direct one-on-one and scaring the bejeebers out of everybody. And it just ain't true. Can I go again? You know, I, I think it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know. My personal bias, I think it's, it's probably um, backed up by evidence Um, You know, from the AMA, from the OIG, from the Department of Justice, um, from uh, uh, medical directors of insurance plans, uh, I, I, you know, the the, the important thing that we need to do is is seek first to understand. Um, When we talk about care extenders, um, we're not supposed to give our personal opinions up here. Um, but, you know, I think that it's time for our profession to maybe look at the fact that is it, you know, it might be appropriate to use care extenders in some instances, but the point of fact is that the way the coding structure is defined today and the way the payment system is defined today under Medicare, and by the way, under over 80% of payers on the private side who use an RBRVS-based payment system to determine their own fee schedules, the truth of the matter is that we can't have it both ways. If we want to use care extenders, which may be a very effective way of dealing with issues of workforce in the future, and actually, regardless of workforce, dealing with what's the most appropriate care for the patient, the fact of the matter is that the value of what we are paid today is based on the definition, not interpretation, of one-on-one. And I would agree. It's verbal, visual, or manual contact. The truth of the matter is, if we want to use a care extender, we can't have it both ways. We can't get paid as if we're doing it and yet use a care extender. 
And we mix metaphors here because when physicians use care extenders, they're often paid under a bundled global payment structure. They get a single payment and that's how they manage the patient. We're paid on a fee-for-service procedural intervention system that's defined in a certain way. If we don't, how, one of the best things about Medicare is the fact that we have the right as Americans to petition our government. If we don't like how we're getting paid, if we don't like the structure, we have the right to change it. We have the right to go back to the CPT editorial panel and say, we want to define our, 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 our procedures in a different way. What we need to understand is what the impact of those decisions are. We can get paid for a physical therapist uh, overseeing the care of 3, 4, 20, 30 patients at one time, but the payment for that, you can't, you can't treat five patients over the course of an hour and ask that each one of them, you receive an hour's worth of payment. You can't get paid for five hours in one hour. The last point I'll make is our coding structure today defines what the therapist is doing with the patient. It's not set up to identify what the patient is doing in your clinic. That was a deliberate focus in 1995. We can go back and say we want to change it, but understand that instead of receiving 30 bucks for 15 minutes, you'll probably receive three or four. It's a trade-off. You know, um, when Steve mentions that the OIG and the AMA and his personal bias, he's talking about bureaucrats. He's talking about bureaucrats that are so far removed from the day-to-day -day interaction between a physical therapist and his or her patient that has no clue as to the repercussions of the rules on top of rules that they put in place. Um, it's not a fact to say that physical therapists are out seeing five patients in an hour. That, that begets a very suspicious bias. There is a small percentage of PTs probably violating the rules, but they're going to violate the rules regardless. The way you make physical therapists autonomous is unshackle them from the rules, allow them to practice within their state practice act. You know, why wait for House of Delegates to have the debate? The debate's already been had. Every, most states have, a, have all kinds of provisions on direction and delegation. They debate it. They vetted out our model practice act put together by physical therapists in conjunction with attorneys, allows for the use of direction and delegation. Why debate that further than it's already been done? It's not a question of debating. I agree with you. It's not a question of debating. It's the fact that, that the Practice Act, simply because something's legal, there are lots of things that are legal that we can't bill for in a third-party payer environment. The truth of the matter is that if you're a third party, that someone else gets to decide. I mean, your car insurance. You have car insurance. You get in an accident. You don't go to the insurance company and say, I have car insurance, therefore I want to, you know, my, my Yugo, for those of you who remember Yugo, my Yugo is in an accident, I want that Mercedes over there. You know, or you don't get to say to them, you should total my car. They determine, based on a set of standards, what they're going to do. You know, I would agree with you. You know, our scope of practice allows what's legal, but we have a payment system that overlies that. We may very well have the opportunity to do exactly what you're saying. We may find ourselves at the opposite end of a bundled or episodic or provisive payment system, and, and we may then be able to do exactly that. But what we have to do is we have to say, let's define how we want to practice. And you know, an APTA has done that, by the way, and so when you talk about care extenders, I believe you're not talking about PTAs, I believe you're talking about aides and secretaries and so forth, whoever the therapist thinks is reasonable. The fact of the matter is that we have a professional position that says, 
only physical therapists and physical therapist assistants provide interventions. So if we want to go out and say, let everyone who we believe is qualified, then that has to come back to a professional position. And, and our profession has said, at this point in time, we don't believe that's the case. And so our payment for services actually models what our profession says they want. So on the one hand, we say, you know, APTA and the profession of physical therapists should, should have control and should be able to direct what we want. Well, in this case, we've done this, and now we're saying, well, maybe that's not really what we want. I don't think we can have it both ways. I, I, don't, I don't think it works both ways. Payers are allowed to interpret based on them. And most of the payers that I talk to, absent Medicare, but particularly in workers' comp and in private insurers, interpret it that allows you to work within the scope of your practice, which is the way it should be interpreted. There's no question about that. Now, unfortunately, what happens when we have a professional association that takes a position, and, we, and I hope we get to review that, it basically says PT and PTAs are the only providers of PT. That's going against 50, you know, almost every state's practice act. It's going against the model uh, um, scope of practice. It's not member-centric at all. It's in fact it comes from a very arrogant position. You show me one of the board of directors on that who signed off on that petition who has a private practice in a state that uses support personnel that is not using their support personnel. It's this groupthink and idealism that is completely impractical. Try moving 50 million people into a system. See if you don't practice. You, you got out of private practice long before all these rules that you've been endorsing put on all of us. Again, again, I, you know, I, I, I think if we're going to debate, yeah. we need to debate the facts. Okay. And, and That's let's a just fact. Well, the fact is, I had a private practice for 22 years that was extremely successful under the current rules, following the current rules. No, our margins weren't 30, 40, 60 percent, but they, they may have been, you know, 8 to 15 percent. And the truth of the matter is that although I sold my practice to my therapist in 2005, they're paying me over 10 years. I'm very invested in making sure that I get paid for my okay. practice over that period of time. And I work with practices all over the country okay. who are very successful okay. in this environment. Okay, so I, I, had a, I had a feeling this was going to happen, and I'm, I'm glad it happened. I, I actually Because it's, it's sort of, um, uh, well, it set the stage here. <laughs> I'm going to ask that we switch gears a little bit, although I don't think we're going to switch in, uh, passion <laughs> at all, but we are going to switch gears a little bit. And um, I'm going to um, ask um, uh, Larry to talk about, from a practitioner's perspective, uh, what is the cost of remaining compliant? And, and, then, and then remove yourself from the practitioner's perspective, go back to the original question and say, and ask, it, where I asked, what is the, um, the reason for the regulations in the first place? So what's the cost of remaining compliant? And, are, and is, in the long run, when all, of it's, when all of it is said and done, how are we addressing what I heard from both of you, uh, <clears throat> what I see as the two major issues? One is the standardization of care, the reason for regulation, and also the overutilization of services. Do, does, it, does it work? And where is the cost born? And give me an idea of what the cost really is. Sure. Well, I think you have to, when you look at cost, I think you have to look at it in two major categories, the direct cost and the indirect cost. Well, the direct cost is that it's a reduction in payment because there is a cost of compliance. There's a cost of training, educating, monitoring. Every quarter we review X number of charts. If there's been any overlap schedules, honest mistakes, uh, we send Medicare back money. 
Um, not, not that the money is, is, the, is our cost, but our cost of doing that, those activities and hiring consultants and making sure our practice and internal and external auditors that do all of this and then keeping up with those regs, they're, they're hidden costs that involve your practice. So it, it's a reduction in reimbursement. Uh, the PQRI, which is a voluntary, supposedly, according to CMS's website, evidence-based in a future of what paper performance is going to look like, is also a pay reduction. Um, in a survey of over 300 clinic operators, less than a third are doing it, and out of the third, less than a third of those have been paid to the whopping sum of about $700. So the cost of PQRI, even though it's voluntary, perhaps will be mandatory while we passively sit by and let it, is going to end up being another reduction in cost. So that's the direct cost. Then you have all the indirect, the loss of morale. Try taking a passionate, energetic new grad and teaching them about timed versus untimed codes, group therapy, which is untimed, but you need to keep track of the minutes, about the stopwatch, about the number of minutes that you add, about the chart reviews that you have to do. And then watch how they engage with a patient that's a Medicare versus a non-Medicare patient. For Steve to suggest there's no difference is just ludicrous. There's complete differences in managing those patients. You have a lot of additional regulations between doc additional documentation guidelines on Medicare patients, you have everything from the ABN. You're not even, we're not even allowed to opt out of Medicare like physicians are. So there, the, this is not a simple rule. You have inconsistencies in Part A and Part B. Part A has been able to successfully keep extenders, and they've been able to successfully keep the supervision of students. Part B, we haven't been. So let's not try to take the privilege away from Part A. Let's try to liberate Part B like we are Part A. So the indirect costs happen in morale, and they ultimately unfortunately happen, the PTs are leaving the outpatient environment in mass numbers. The shortages that you're seeing in all the recruiters here of outpatient environment is not just caused by the true shortage, it's also caused by the number of PTs who throw their hands in the air and say, I can't stand the pressure of productivity, of clinical excellence and compliance, of, of evidence-based practice, of customer service, of paying off my school student loans. I can't take this pressure anymore. I'm going to go to a less pressure-sensitive environment. So those job openings are also created. And again, that artificial cap on earnings in, uh, in Medicare, it's, it's a real devastation and demoralizer to practice. I think, I think a third area that Larry and I will agree on is, is the cost for compliance. Cost for compliance is significant. It, it just is. Um, the, the, there, there are several issues that I think we have to think about, and I, I tried to write down as, as many of the, the incorrect statements that Larry made as I could just to, to try and follow up with them. Um, but I was a little, I couldn't write that fast. Um, you know, I think that the, 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 from a cost of compliance issue, um, one of the challenges we have is to provide a mechanism to reduce that cost. Because it is, I mean, I'll tell you, my practice um, I only saw patients about 20% of the time because spending, spending that amount, the amount of time that needed to be spent keeping up. It, it is definite direct cost related to that. That doesn't mean we say, get rid of them. What, what it means is we have to find ways to make it easier, to make it less costly. For instance, we moving to electronic medical records is one way to be able to do that because what you can do and what astute uh, companies will do is incorporate compliance alerts and compliance standards into a system that's at point of care of the patient so that you don't have to go out and figure out where to find it. APTA has done a wonderful job of putting everything that you need or most things that you need in one place uh, to, to sort of figure that out. So, so the cost for remaining compliant is significant, but, but here's what I'm going to tell you, and you know, Larry can say it's based on my own personal biases. It's also based on 20 years of working with federal law enforcement, and that is the cost of noncompliance is much greater. 
Uh, we have seen uh, therapists lose their licenses, lose their practices, go to jail because of non-compliance. And for Larry or anyone to sit here and say that private payers don't utilize many of the same rules, that message puts our profession at risk. We can, we can agree that many of these rules, frankly, are stupid, and they need to be changed. What I do, and what I, many of you in the room do in your particular areas, in, in, your, in your states, in your chapters, is try and explain the rules, and, and try and provide members knowledge so that they understand the risks of not complying. Costs are significant. When you talk about uh, Part A allowing uh, students and allowing extenders, you're absolutely right. But what you're not telling this group is you're in a different payment system. On the Part A payment system, you get one lump sum. You manage that patient any way you want. If you want to have students uh, see patients, if you want to use care extenders, you're not going to get any more money if you do that. We're in a fee-for-service payment system on the outpatient Part B side. That payment system has rules, have requirements related to it. I, I, I believe that we will get our wish, or some of our wish, much sooner than we would like if you start looking at, at alternative payment systems. And we're on the same panel. We're hearing the same discussions about the potential for changes in payment system. So I think we need to remember, when that system comes back, that we will probably be in much more of a cap system because you'll not be able, that patient who comes into your, to your office, who requires extensive care because they're really complex, you'll probably get the same payment as the patient who comes into your clinic and is relatively easy. And we'll probably be having a conversation 15 or 20 years from now lamenting about the old days when we could get paid for the amount of care we actually provided under rules that were fairly standard and fairly transparent. One rebuttal. One rebuttal. Um, well, again, I, I approach it as the overwhelming majority of PTs try to do the right thing, make an honest attempt to abide by the regulations and the standards, and they ought to be compliant. Um, we agree on that. Um, but this whole, this whole notion of compliance and using an EMR system as some panacea that will decrease your compliance cost, it's very marginal. Uh, over 50 clinics have been using EMR for years. It doesn't decrease the effort that you have to take to, to, uh, to monitor compliance at all. It's just really a fundamental notion of whether you believe that PTs can practice in an autonomous environment do you believe that they have enough smarts and enough common sense to practice within their scope of practice? I can tell you the payers that I've worked with in the last 20 years, very few, there have been an increased number, but very few have adopted Medicare rules as the de facto standard. There have been a couple. In the comp environment, I haven't seen any of them. However, the way they deal with the other cost, which is the necessary for regulations, instead of saying, let's adopt Medicare regulations, they provide arbitrary limit on number of CPT codes bill daily, which is a utilization issue, number of calendar days that you can, you can see a patient, number of visits in some cases, number of days per diagnosis. They, they handle it a variety of different ways. Unfortunately, there is no standard. But if there is ever going to be a standard, I sure as heck hope it isn't Medicare. Well, I, I, would, just, I would just say that, that part of uh, the, the, um, the definition of a profession is their willingness and ability to self-police. And frankly, we haven't been willing as a profession to do that. I would agree again with Larry. I think that's number four. I would agree with Larry that, um, that most therapists, I think a far majority um, of therapists, are trying desperately to do the right thing. 
Um, but there are some that are not, to the tune of somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 uh, million dollars to $2 billion dollars a year. Uh, and those, that's, that's data that you can get. But I, I, but I think the basic idea, this free market idea, that, that, that PTs have enough smarts and competence to regulate themselves flies in the face of the need for licensing boards, right? It, I, mean, I mean, if we didn't, if PTs did that, if PTs always did that, and there are bad apples in every profession, we wouldn't need licensure laws to protect the public. We wouldn't need regulatory boards. So the truth of the matter is, not everyone does that. Well, just real quickly, I'm not advocating for any getting, getting rid of licensure boards. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm for empowering them. That's what they're there for. We, we need rules. We just have too many of them. Okay. Um, this, this, um, I'm going to get into the self-policing thing with a question that's going to come up later on. But before we go there, um, I want to go back to the, again, the reasons that were cited for the regulations in the first place. It sounds to me like um, for some, in some way, shape, or form, regulations come to being, and then they're modified and so forth. And it seems as though the path to this thing is the regulations come to come to fruition, and, and I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on how exactly that happens, but the game that's played, it seems, is that then compliance officers, they're dying to see the next you know, publication to come out. They look at it, and they go through this process of uh, seeing what they have to change in their practice in order to remain compliant. And um, all of this goes on uh, under the guise of, again, trying to minimize anything, maximize reimbursement, minimize what's lost in terms of costs and everything else. Right, my, my favorite line from The Godfather, after all, we're not communists, right? We're in, in the game to, to make some money. Now, what I'm, my question is, um, where does the patient come in in all this? Where is the, where, where, I mean, do, does it, does the, does the patient, uh, does anything related to outcomes, does anything related to best care practices, do they, do they enter the equation at all in any of this whole process? And I, I'm, I'm addressing this question first to Steve. You know, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that we have to be clear about, and there seems to be sort of a, a, a tone that's implied that, that changing regulations um, always results in more complex, more burdensome regulations. Well, historically, that's just not true. Um, we have regulations that have eliminated the referral or order requirement under Medicare. Uh, that took away a burden. We had regulations that changed the certification time from 30 days to 90 days. Now, we could argue and we would all agree that the certification on Medicare is a regulation that should go away. Uh, but it's there, but it, but it, is, it is better. Um, so, so I think that we have to recognize that not all changing of regulations is a bad thing, and some of them allow greater latitudes in practice. In fact, for, uh, for those uh, six states that don't allow evaluation or uh, w without referral, Medicare is more is more liberal. So I think we have to we have to deal with that. But but the patient absolutely uh, comes into play, and you're seeing that now. Now we've seen that under some regulations that are designed to protect the patient. For instance. Uh, the the the, uh, the limit on the, the co-insurance under the Medicare program. Now we see private payers out there that have co-pays of thirty dollars, fifty dollars, seventy dollars. Some of the co-pay requirements in private insurers are more than the amount of the visit that they actually pay you. 
Medicare puts regulations in place to protect the patient. It says your, your maximum out of pocket is going to be 20%. That, that's one particular area. And, and, you know, when you look at, at reports that have come out, you look at, at MedPAC's report, you know, wh- where's the value toward, toward, toward better value of purchasing uh, outpatient therapy services? When you look at the GAO reports that have come out, when you look at the OIG reports that come out, they all basically say the same thing. Money is being spent, more and more money is being spent every year, and we have no idea what we're getting for that. So, you know, so they put in a program like PQRI. Arguably, probably not so much uh, uh, easy to navigate, and I would agree, again, maybe number five, that, that in fact, it's, it's hard to, to necessarily participate with that. But the interesting thing is, it's probably not the PQRI. I mean, again, I don't think any of us are going to argue that, that we should be paid for better care, for getting better outcomes. Those regulations, those policies, and PQRI, if we look historically at, at uh, the hospital system, will probably end up being a man- mandatory program at some point in the future, which we'll probably talk about, is, is our design for exactly that reason, to impact better value of care for patients. All right. Well, you know, first of all, when Steve mentions that an enhancement or an improvement in a reg has occurred, the flip side of that is they then, they then add three, four, and five additional regulations. Explicit provider lists, eight-minute rule. ABN, edits, modifiers, edits. I don't know how many times a year that edits come into play. All the additional modifiers you have to add if you're trying to participate voluntarily in something like uh, PQRI. Now, before I get to the patient, though, what you got to understand, I think there are two elements to these regulations. One is what they're doing to us as PTs, and in essence to control our practice outside of our scope of practice, because most of these rules eradicate, eliminate, marginalize our state practice act. Then they put in additional, um, additional uh, restrictions that limit overutilization in an attempt to say, look, the rising cost of outpatient PT is going through the roof. That's why we have a cap. That's why we have, in some payers, artificial number of visits, days, calendar days, and all those kinds of things. Then you're left with the patient, as you point out. And none of these regulations have enhanced evidence-based practice. None of them have enhanced a decrease in variation or an increase in consistency of care. In fact, there's plenty of research that shows that with the advent of all of these, that in, in, if anything, what we find is that it's made it more variable or more inconsistent. So, so the patient is removed. These, these regulations, for the most part, Steve's pointed out a, a few, but for the most part are indifferent to, to them. It's, it's a constraint and a bottleneck for us. Well, well I, I think you know. I think we have to be careful about um, talking out of both sides of our mouth and, and wanting our cake and eating it too. You know, when we talk about um, care extenders or explicit providers, um, I, I'm pretty pleased with the fact that under the Incident Two regulations, those regulations have tightened up who can provide physical therapy services in a physician's office. So the physician can't have their secretary providing PT services and bill for it. They can't have someone with a pulse provide PT services and bill for it. They have to have what's considered to be a qualified provider. Now, that doesn't include licensure because that would be a congressional change. So on the one hand, I don't know, maybe, maybe those of us in the room would be going out and saying we should, we should get rid of those qualifications and let physicians use anyone in their office at all to bill for physical therapy services. But to say we like those regulations that you should have a qualified provider in a physician's office provide physical therapy services, but we want anyone that we want simply because we're the PT and we know what's best for the patient, I don't think we can have it both ways. I I think we have to choose. 
you're either getting care from a qualified provider, which goes to the, to the benefit of the patient. And I, I, I haven't seen the research that, that has a direct link from the fact that the regulations that have occurred have caused more of a variation in clinical practice. I'd love to see that data. I haven't seen it. It, it may exist. And I think the other thing that we have to recognize, when we've talked about this concept of the eight-minute rule, um, I, I know Larry's going to disagree with this, but the CPT code says each 15 minutes. It doesn't say that when you bill for 16 minutes, you get to bill for two units. In fact, if you go back to the AMA and you go back to CPT assistant and you go back to things that have been written, uh, you're going to see it's each 15 minutes. And when you talk to organizations like Blue Cross uh, of, um, I'm forgetting where I was just recently, um, Blue Cross uh, of uh, Illinois, I believe, and I may have the state wrong, uh, they're citing this, the same interpretation. Uh, medical directors don't believe if you go and ask a medical director you may call the provider relations person and say you know can I bill this unit if I'm supervising the patient they may say yes get it in writing by the way because every time we've seen them say yes and they come back and audit to take money back the, the provider can't provide the, the direction from the payer when you talk to medical directors of private payers they want to know that they're paying for quality care they interpret quality care based on the, the skills of the therapist or the PTA I think the question, that leads me to the next question. No, Rebecca? You had one. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Can you do it in a minute? Sure. All right. Sure. There's a typical example of where a regulation, and we don't don't take into account the unintended consequences of a regulation. There's no question that a qualified provider was an improvement. It forced physicians who are using, as you you cite, anybody and everybody, to, to hire PTs. The incident, too, and it also allowed them to then enroll them in as an independent provider, same as a physical therapist private practice, which, as we know from the data in Medicare, severely increased the number of claims. I think it's about 35% of the Medicare dollars. So it's the unintended consequences of the regs. That was a good good idea, but what it did was it basically endorsed uh, physician practice. The last thing is that... Um, uh, you know, I think, we, I think we're going to agree that in order to change the reimbursement model, we've got to get away from fee-for-service because it increases utilization. It doesn't represent our profession. Good. Um, so I'm, I'm going back to this issue of uh, the patient and patient involvement. Um, where, where, do, um, where do outcomes come into this, this whole process? Where, again, uh, can you foresee... And, uh, I'm going to address this to Steve first, okay. Can you foresee a time when we are more reliant on uh, some measure of outcome in a clinic and less on the process of what goes on? I hope. Um, you, you know, so the question of outcomes, I mean, part, part of the difficulty, part of the frustration um, uh, that, that physical therapists and all providers have, um, given the, the current regulatory environment, is... Uh, we know that we don't have any data on outcomes. Um, but the problem is we also don't have a system that allows us to report them. Um, and so that really becomes a, a, a difficult situation when, when we say, and MedPAC has said, and the Government Accountability Office has said, look, you know, we're spending all this money and we don't know what we're getting, and yet we have a system like ICD-9 which doesn't really define the diagnosis for which physical therapists are treating patients. And so we have to present uh, what we're doing. The, the, th- the patients... The, 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 the payers know two things about the patients that we're treating. They know some sort of diagnosis that may or may not represent why the patient's in your office, and they know a list of codes 
that are that are fairly heterogeneous in regards to interventions, even within the way the code's defined. And so, you know, that really becomes an issue because when, when Medicare or any payer gets a claim and they can't figure out why this patient has a total hip replacement was seen for, you know, two weeks and this patient has a total hip replacement was seen for four months, when you can't, you have no way of reporting all of the other comorbidities and all of the other issues that are going on, that becomes a problem. Absolutely, and I think, I think that if we look at what's going on in the healthcare reform debate now and what's been happening, we're going to get to a level of outcomes. I'm really glad to see it, that APTA has endorsed international classification of function because I think that's one way that's going to help us to begin to report uh, the, the activities and the ability to participate rather than simply reporting a bunch of CPT and diagnosis codes. So I think what we're going to be seeing now is exactly that. Now, can I say that it's going to be a decrease in process? I don't know. It's a government bureaucracy. But I do think that what we're going to see is driving more toward developing outcomes, and we're going to, be have, we're going to have to be ready to make sure that we're uh, at the plate because not every patient that we see is going to be able to have a higher functional outcome. Uh, certainly in, in treating a, a patients with, with end-stage uh, life issues and, and terminal cancer and those kinds of things. So we're going to have to make sure that, that we're, we're defining what we want those outcomes to be. Larry? Well, I, I agree with Steve. I certainly hope so that outcomes would be part of the equation, but I'm by no means encouraged by what Medicare has done. If you read directly from their website, it says, Participation in PQRI program to improve care of patients they serve through evidence-based measures that are based upon clinical guidelines. Participating in PQRI is a way to prepare for future pay-for-performance programs. And we end up with a system that's got this type of simplicity that has not been put in place by physical therapists, that has not had measures that we can even relate to on a you know, broad basis. There are issues of complexity, comorbidities. Uh, those have to be addressed. Those are not simple issues. Um, when we look at you know episodic care, same things come into place. Those are not simple issues. You know, I think that for them, any time we've seen Medicare put in place, pay for performance, whatever euphemism you want to use, or quality or outcomes, it's always more compliance driven. Did you do this? We're rewarding you for checking this. And um, I'm hopeful, but I'm not encouraged by at least PQRI or the adoption rate of private practice or anybody to, to actually use it. I think it's an important topic because, you know, Larry, Larry makes a good point that, you know, we've gotten away actually from talking about the concept of pay for performance because really pay for performance was pay for reporting, was paying for another process. You know, really the term we're using is value-based purchasing, and that's really going to drive these particular areas. I, I think that the difficulty we, we embark on, and, and, you know, this was... This was an issue um, back in, in 1990 or 1992 in the House of Delegates when the House of Delegates took up a physical therapist-only coding system. And we, we recognized very quickly that we were not going to be able to design a coding system for our profession outside of the system that was already the accepted system in the process. You know, PQRI is here to stay, and it may be different, and I hope it's going to be different, and I hope it's going to be, continue to be perfected, but it's really not about the, the concept that paying for value or improved performance is bad. I think more of the issue is, are the measures that have been developed to adequately and appropriately identify what we believe is quality is there? I mean, I think that there's some basic concerns when, when we look at quality measures, and I would argue that many of the quality measures are actually much more related to basic competence than actual quality of care. 
And so I think we, we need to be at the table. You know, we are at the table now. And I think that we, you know, what I would say, and I think Larry would probably say the same thing, whether it's regulation, whether it's quality, whatever it is, we, are, we have the ability now to influence the process. Fifteen years ago, when I went to the AMA, we were not allowed to speak to the physicians in the room except through an interpreter who, with all apologies to my New York colleagues, was a physiatrist from New York, uh, which meant we were not able to speak to anyone in that room. You, you fast forward to 2009. We have representatives who are well ingrained in this professional association at the table with PQRI, at the table in all of these other areas. So we have an opportunity now. We, we can yell and scream and complain that it's a bad system, whether it's quality or anything else, or we can take this opportunity to participate, to get engaged in the process and to change it to what we want it to be. But I don't think we're going to be able to change a system like PQRI and have our own physical therapy system. I think what we're going to have to do is take the system that's designed by the government and say, how do we make it work for us? You know, I, I think when I look at, at the outcome movement, I, I think it's one in the bully pocket. I think it's one through education. And PTs that are doing outcomes, the 300-plus representatives of clinics that have not, or a third of them have used PQRI, they're already using other outcome measurements, ANPAC, photo, uh, things that they can relate to that the clinicians understand. We don't need an incentive to do outcome measures. We ought to be doing them because we're professional. And that's the fundamental difference, I think, between my view and Steve's view. He wants to legislate outcomes, incentivize for them. I think PTs do them because it's the right thing to do. I think there's been a good transformation of practice and evidence-based practice. I think there's good momentum on the outcome side. Um, any attempt at a financial incentive is going to look something along the lines of PQRI, which is not an incentive. In fact, it's a pay cut. I agree with Larry. Um, as a profession, we shouldn't need to be incentivized to look at outcomes. The fact of the matter is, we need to be. Um, I've been going around the country now for 15 years teaching for APTA, and it hasn't changed. And we ask this question, how many people in the audience, I ask, how many of you in here are collecting outcomes? Okay, so we've got probably 20% of the audience collecting outcomes. And so does that mean that the rest of you don't care? No. It means the rest of you either don't understand how to do it, don't have the tools to do it, don't understand their significance. So should we be doing it? Yes. Do we need to be able to provide the tools and education to be able to do it? Absolutely. I, I, I think that that's part of the issue is they do need an incentive. The Obama administration recognizes people need an incentive to move to an electronic health record. That's why we, we have the, the laws in place that we do now. I think that the, it, it gets to the next question, though, and I'll, and I'll direct it to you, uh, Steve. Um, it, I would like to offer a, a possible another explanation for why they're not being done. And that other explanation uh, that I've heard oftentimes is um, the, the, the amount that therapists have to do in the, in, with regard to, and I'm just going to use compliance as one of the issues, with regard to process, has crossed this threshold. And to think of adding another, another something else, when in the short term it's not, it doesn't appear to be doing them much good, is I think comes to it comes to the forefront here, and the question then becomes, from from my perspective, um, do you foresee? Uh, you you said the process is there. You don't see the process changing. Do you foresee that whole uh, notion changing in the future under the under the guise of uh, perhaps an alternative uh, uh, way to approach patient care, uh, an alternative way to uh, to report it, 
uh, outside of, with a more outcome-oriented approach as opposed to a process-oriented approach. Do you see that actually becoming uh, a, a, a possibility? You know, you know, I do. I hope I didn't say that I don't think the process needs to change. So if I, no, no, I said I, that... I think you, know, you said that you, the process won't... We, we, ha- we, we have to play in the sandbox we're given. Until we have the opportunity to extend the sandbox, we have to make the sandbox we're in the best we can make it. And, and we should be trying at every possible opportunity to find alternatives. But at the same way, we, we have to be dealing with what we're dealing with. Now, you know, so, so I do see, if your question is, you know, do we make this, um, is the process going to be made better? Uh, are our outcomes going to occur? You know, I think that they are, but, but only to the point that we're engaged. You know, APTA represents somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 36 percent of eligible providers. So that means that we, we first have to get our own members to agree. Uh, any of you that sat through the House of Delegates and, 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 and went through the Code of Ethics, you, you know how difficult that is to do, uh, to get everyone to agree. But ultimately, I, I think we're going to need to be able to do that. If we can come to an agreement, I, I do absolutely have confidence. If we can come to a professional agreement about what we want the outcome to be, I think we, we as APTA and our professional organization, are in the best place we've ever been to influence the process. It's not influencing the process, in my mind. It's coming to the decision of what do we want that process to be? What do we want it to look like? And, and then move in that direction. Well, you know, I think, Tony, you hit the nail on the head. What happens is when we introduce all these additional rules and regulations, we never take anything away. So perhaps the low adoption rate of PQRI isn't just that it's not an easy thing to understand, it's just that it's another thing to do um, and, and just can't be done. And that, again, leads into the whole demoralizing of what I'm calling the, the outpatient PT environment through these rules and regulations. I would like to address a little bit what Steve said about CPT codes, because you can't have fundamental change that allows you to look at outcomes unless you have some fairly drastic changes in the way we're paid. Um, Steve is right. Largely, uh, Helene's work several years ago transitioned a significant change and a better representation of how our practice was to CPT codes. Did, did do some revaluing of the, of the weights, much better. But that doesn't mean it's over yet. Our practice has since migrated additionally. So we can go back and try to make CPT code changes. Very difficult to do, in a sense, because AMA does own them. They are AMA CPT codes. But, you know, through practice surveys, the biggest thing I hope we can get is ENM codes. And Steve could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when that mess started, there were about nine providers who were not allowed to use ENM codes. Now I think we're down to, what, about three? And we're one of the three. We can get rid of the, the, all the intervention codes, bundle them under an ENM system that, is, that takes into account complexity and comorbidities and what we're actually doing process-wise to a patient that would allow us to fundamentally integrate outcomes assessment into the ongoing you know, patient-client you know, management. So the, third, the last piece I will say is episodic care is going to be a buzzword, but I've got to tell you, we're a long way away from being able to pay for that. You know, I represent PTs on the low back pain work group uh, that's funded by the Robert Wood Johnson, the only PT on that panel, of every medical specialty that's looking at low back pain. And there's no debate amongst that panel, by the way, that PT has a role and has a role in triage and initial screening. That's not a debate amongst the chiropractor, the physiatrist, or any. Everybody agrees to that. But, the, but looking at the data and using people, they're using the Brookings Institute, which is some scary smart folks, 
and all the demographic and epidemiological data, it's a very difficult concept. So we're a couple of years away at least from even trial, you know, putting in a trial for episodic care, at least as it relates to low back pain. So that's not an immediate answer. And, and, I, and I would, you know, I would say I think, I think Larry's right. I think we, I think we have outgrown our coding system. Uh, the problem with that is, is that it takes time to make that change, and we should not be moving forward to change our coding system until we can come to agreement on what that system should be. Um, so, so we need to do that, and I, I would hope that all of you are going to the Mailey Lecture after this, because I think you'll hear some very interesting and intriguing uh, ideas about that. Um, but I think that one of the things we have to be, be aware of is that, and we'll go back to the issue of, of evidence and outcomes, which is if we want to move forward with, say, an evaluation and management sort of service, and, and I, I would agree, I think that's where we need to go, and whether we call it evaluation and management, which has very negative, talk about not wanting to get ourselves into a compliance mess, gets, has very negative issues, and maybe we talk about something like evaluation and intervention or whatever the case may be. I think we have to recognize that, that in order to do that, we have to go back to you, uh, our profession, to get, that, to get that data. That takes us into the issue of evidence once again. Because when we did this 15 years ago, and we looked at how therapists around the country document their examination and evaluation process, we're all over the place. We don't have any standards. So in order for us to go and say, this is what we want, we have to be able to say, and, and here's the data, here's the evidence to show what we provide in our evaluation services. Because I gotta tell you, I review tens of thousands of physical therapy records. Again, probably a personal bias that I have. But um, the truth of the matter is, when physical therapists routinely, in their evaluation, uh, identify the, 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 the top three, range of motion, strength, and pain, as the only things they're measuring on evaluation, that really becomes a problem. Um, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here. Uh, we're going to go to audience participation now. <laughs> Just to show you that I'm only, a, I'm only the paper moderator. <laughs> the real moderator sits to, to the editor-in-chief's right. <laughs> uh, we'll go to uh, audience participation now. Um, so anybody who has a burning question for either one of our uh, speakers, uh, the microphones are there. Please uh, state your name and where you're from. And... Uh, we're open, and if somebody doesn't move to the mic, I'm going to ask another question. Jonathan Cooperman, Ohio. Uh, Steve, I have a question for you. You mentioned that uh, 8 to 10 cents of the dollar, I thought, was your, quote, went to fraud and abuse issues every healthcare dollar. Is that correct? What, what's the cost for administrative process in healthcare? It, it's pretty significant. It's, 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 I, I don't know the exact number, so I don't want to throw it out. What, what's interesting is, but, but it, it's, it's pretty significant, unfortunately. Uh, what's interesting is if you're watching, um, and I'm sure most of you are, are well engaged in, in healthcare reform at this point and what's going on, if you, if you look at how uh, we're intending in this country to pay for the 47 to 50 million uninsureds, it's getting rid or minimizing that fraud, waste, and abuse. So it's, it's a pretty significant dollar value. Thank you. Kathy Anastasio from New York. Hi. Um, New York was kind of bantered about, so I wanted to spell <laughs> some. In a couple ways, yeah. <laughs> tell you why maybe you don't want to move to New York. Um, physical therapist assistants are the only recognized PT extender under our practice act. In the workers' comp and no fault arena, strict, strict interpretation of the workers' comp regulations prevent delegation to physical therapist assistants. And, and in our workers' comp system, we are paid under a relative value system that's capped at about 28 minutes worth of service for physical therapy intervention. So in the highest 
uh, region of the state in Midtown Manhattan, you're going to be paid $61.60 a visit. Um, we have these ridiculously high co-pays, but Medicare is our payer of choice. Um, talking about compliance, the, the, the unwarranted variances that we talked about in the mega issues for the House, um, that I see is a big problem, that PT compliance, I've sat on uh, Medicare, carry advisory committees with, with revisions of the policies, and the LCDs. I think that that's what Steve is getting at. It's not so much that we're under-regulated, but we're under-complying and PTs don't know the rules that they're supposed to be practicing by. So my question is about about changing payment methodologies and how do we see um, incorporating um, this into the various payment models if, you're, if we're going to go to these other type of E&M codes as you're suggesting. Well, I think if we go to an E&M system, I think the first thing we got to agree on is to get rid of all the other CPT codes that, that really don't represent our profession well. Right now, we have a laundry list of codes. Many of them are modalities. Most of them don't have very much evidence to support them. By bundling through an E&M system, theoretically, that would take into account complexity and comorbidities, we would be given ample time and ample reimbursement by reweighting the codes to be able to see patients. I will tell you, that's a lot easier to talk about than it is to put in place. And frankly, I don't see leadership anywhere on this issue. I don't see any proposed system that takes into account. I agree with Steve on that. Not from our national association, not from any individual. So we can't make changes in the CPT code system until we get at least alternatives uh, to view. The PTA assistant, you, you mentioned it. it, it's a very, it ought to be the subject of its own debate because while we give them carte blanche in terms of putting them, equating them to a certain extent in Medicare with PT and PT assistant, the, the, the Medicare's own language clearly states in it that they are not allowed to make medical decisions or judgments or be responsible for patients. Yet we get inconsistency. Home health, they're allowed to work independent. In a rehab agency, they could be on site without a physical therapist being there. And in, um, in, in uh, physical therapy private practice, they can't. So there's, there's just... The problem, again, with all these rules and regulations, there's too many of them. They're confusing. They conflict with one another. And it is impossible to keep up. It's like, it's like being in the you know, an NCAA and being able to, you know, you have to hire five compliance people to make sure to keep, keep it out. That's not what this profession is all about. You know, Kathy, I, I would agree that they're, they, they can be confusing. I, I agree that they can be complex. I don't agree that we can't keep up. There are multiple avenues to be able to keep up from uh, getting emails uh, into your inbox every time uh, there, there's an announcement about something. APTAS, great stuff uh, on, their, on their website. So I, I would not agree with that. Um, it, it, it is confusing and, and, and schizophrenic if you're managing uh, in a hospital and you have to manage inpatient and outpatient and all those other because the rules are different. And, and I think we would all agree that, that it's, not, it's not the fact that the rules exist, it's the fact that they probably need to come more in line uh, with each other. Um, but the one thing also that I, you know, I, I do want to disagree a little bit with Larry about is, is we are thinking about this. You know, APTA has been working through, has been information written in PT Magazine and other places about the concept of the severity intensity model that will hopefully identify how we want to, to occur. Now, uh, you know, we probably need to do a better job of, of communicating about that, but the truth of the matter is, is that we probably will do so once we're a little farther along and sort of figuring out how this system is really going to come into place. But I, I think that, that we'll both agree that before we go out and try and change the system we have, we have to know what we want, we have to have it well vetted, and we have to be able to say, this is where we see physical therapists practice. 
By the way, I do agree with you. It's the physical therapist's responsible, responsibility to know the rules. The fact that they're confusing, conflict, controversial, we, don't, we might hate them, it is their responsibility. So I would never buy the excuse that they didn't know the rules. That's their responsibility. I think before, before we go on, I want people who are asking questions to realize that, we're, that this session is being recorded. So you're implying that you, when you go to the microphone, you're implying that you're given permission to be recorded. Next. <laughs> Uh, Tim Flynn from Colorado. I, I just wanted to come back to some uh, comments on stats that were thrown out about uh, the percentage of fraud in, in physical therapy-related claims to just get a kind of size, magnitude of that number, and speak to that in, in regard to the fact that we only represent approximately uh, 2 to 3 percent of, say, the $90 billion we spend in spine care, direct medical costs alone in spine care. 2 to 3 percent is thrown into, to, in, towards uh, the PTs. One could argue that, uh, you know, if anything, um, just by changing that and even with continued fraud, keeping people from going to drugs and surgery, et cetera, um, we would save vastly more dollars than, um, you know, continuing to put burdensome uh, regulation on us. So I just, I think we need to talk about magnitudes, and I just would like to have some, some, some dollar values in relative to, say, just spine care. Um, I can't give you data relative to spine care. I can give you the following information. Um, again, that 8 to 10 cents is well borne out in, in documents uh, from the OIG, in, in, and, and so you can get all of that data right off the OIG's website. Um, yesterday, there was a, a great presentation, unfortunately, and it goes to show with the couple of thousand people here that yesterday, uh, in a session that was uh, talked about staying compliant, there were probably about 30 people in the room. So it goes to, unfortunately, the fact that is it is it that it's that confusing or is it therapists just don't want to know the information because we have that information here. David Blank from the Office of Inspector General was here. Um, it was an incredible presentation. And what I can tell you is that last year they identified $60 million in fraudulent physical therapy care in the state of Mississippi. That was just Mississippi. And Dave, by David's own admission, uh, we're talking about probably one of the states that has the least uh, amount uh, of Medicare issues. So when you t when you lay onto that, my own state of Florida and New York and California, as well as Texas, arguably the four states with the highest Medicare beneficiary populations, we're talking about significant dollars. So sixty million dollars uh, in fraudulent care. Now I would again I would agree with Larry. You know we're not talking about um, the fact that you know ninety percent of therapists out there are committing fraud. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at this, the, you know the OIG has a very scientific expression for what the $60 million represents and what it represents as, a, as an item all around the country. It's called low-hanging fruit, okay, because it's easy to go after because, again, you had 30 people in a room talking about compliance. It was really, I mean, do we just not, we probably just don't want to hear about it. We're hoping that if we keep our heads low and we just do what everybody else around us does, uh, that we're going to get by. And, and I, the analogy I give to that is, you know, I don't know the last time anybody uh, was speeding along the highway and you got pulled over for a ticket, and I can speak by personal experience this time, and you got pulled over on the highway to try and tell the police officer, well, you were going the same speed as everyone else doesn't necessarily get you off. In fact, it makes him kind of angry. So I don't think that to us, to, to use the, the excuse that, you know, well, I'm doing it the same way everyone else is doing it, therefore it's okay, that, that really causes a bit of a problem. Just one quick comment. If you, if you made the claim, theoretically, that there was 100% abuse in physical therapy outpatient care, 100%, everybody is committing fraud every day, they would recoup 2% of the Medicare budget, or about $3 billion. Peanuts. That's not low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit is 
physician self-interest. Low-hanging fruit is increased utilization by <coughs> physicians who are, are conflicted in their referrals. Well, and let me just clarify. What I mean by low-hanging fruit is, you know, it's very easy for them. I mean, you know, Larry's right. You know, we represent about 2 to 3% of the healthcare dollar in rehab services. And so the question, in fact, the question was asked yesterday. You know, why is there so much focus on physical therapy services when we're only 2% or arguably 3% of the, of the rehabilitation dollar? And the answer was quite clear. We go where the fraud is. That's from the perspective of the OIG. So, Phil? Yeah, Phil Tigell from Arizona. I want to thank you, uh, all three of you, for this uh, excellent presentation and thought-provoking ideas. Um, one of the things, as you were speaking, that occurred to me is that there's an old saying that codes of ethics make explicit what we should already implicitly know. And for most physical therapists in practice, the vast majority, we are totally unaffected by our code of ethics and by our state practice acts and our daily practice of those levels of regulation because our practice is so far above those minimal standards that they don't come into play every day. We don't need the regulation. We already know those things, and the code of ethics and our state laws make sense. On the other hand, we are all impacted by the rules and regulations set down through Medicare and some and other regulatory bodies. The fact that Steve says well, we all have to know about the compliance issues should give us a hint that there, there's something terribly wrong with those regulations. If we're in good practice, we don't even come into those things never come into conflict. So we have these regulations that we have to be aware of that we probably, sh if they were good regulations, we wouldn't even be thinking about them. So there's a problem there to begin with. Now, Steve had mentioned, though, that APTA uh, had adopted a policy that helped guide these uh, principles as far as use of other supportive personnel. And I don't think that was quite true, because I remember sitting in the back of the house when that was adopted. And that was adopted so we would acquiesce to then HICFA, later CMS policy, so that our members wouldn't be in trouble. We want our members to know that if you used extenders and billed for it, you're going to be in trouble. So we we came, we put the cart, uh, the horse after the cart. Um, but you're right, we do have this position that says that we should not be billing for the services of anybody but a PT and a PTA. And I think that leads us into trouble. So the, um, the, the question is, A, is there appropriate utilization? Do we believe as clinicians that there is appropriate utilization that's beneficial to, the, to treating patients that does use other extenders? B, how should we get paid for the use of those extenders, which right now we can, doesn't even come into the ex uh, equation, and see what should we do with APTA policy to guide how we will negotiate uh, future, future recommendations for reimbursement? Well, let me just say, uh, I, I don't want to argue about the, the intent of any position uh, for the House of Delegates. Um, I probably don't have a whole lot of experience there, but um, you can go back and pull the verbatim transcript of that discussion. It's pretty clear. We didn't acquiesce to an insurance company. The discussion was about what's in the best interest of care for our patients. So I think we need to be clear about that. But, but I think you, you raise a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty good issue, which is, you know, how do we deal with the issue of care extenders? I think the first thing we have to do is we have to have a discussion about what we believe as a profession is best practice. Do we believe that it's best practice to use care extenders? Do we believe that having an athletic trainer uh, assist a physical therapist in a situation when you have a, a young patient with a, a, an ACL reconstruction is, is better for the patient? It may be. We have to come to agreement on that. Once we do that, then we have to say, how do we design a payment system that allows us to do that? So I, I think we have to approach it that way. And I, I, you know, I think you know, one of the things, and I, I think we'll both agree on this, I'm not so sure, is that reimbursement has driven practice. The, the tail's wagging the dog there. 
we, we have to decide and we have to come to agreement with what is best practice and then design uh, payment systems around that. The difficulty has been as a profession, we haven't been able to come to agreement on what best practice is. Bill, just a couple points. One, you're right, we're not going to improve any of this regulation by having more ethics courses, okay? But at the same time, we can improve it by looking at what some of the exemplars that are out there. I think the best model for public health is the military system where PTs are given complete autonomy the way it's meant to be. In some cases, prescriptive authority for both medications and imaging. And they practice within the context of that practice act, uninhibited by anything related to extenders. They liberally use support personnel. And the military also has perhaps the highest percentage of board-certified specialists. They were the first to embrace residencies before they were fashionable, have produced some of the most landmark research and evidence-based practice. So we have, to, we have to take those exemplar models and use them in our debate on healthcare. I, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap this. Uh, this, is, uh, this will be uh, uh, the conclusion of, uh, of the Rossing debate this year. I'd like to spend a minute and, uh, and really thank our speakers. I think they did an outstanding job.